Welcome to the Elephant Podcast. My name is Patrick Azara and I am curator at the Elephant um, Today we are joined by Andrew Franklin, um, uh, who is a long-time resident of Kenya. Um, he's been here for 36 years, a former Marine and a security consultant. And we're going to be discussing uh, issues around our security in Kenya. Um, what have we gotten right? What have we gotten wrong? Um, and uh, how can we actually improve in, in what we're doing? So um, let's get to it. I'm very happy to be here, Patrick. All right. Um, first question is, how do you gauge the state, the, the state of security in Kenya at the moment? Do you think we are in a good place or in a well, from the from the different aspects and variables to look at, it, but by and large, we're not we're in a very bad place as far as security goes. Uh, the lack of information from the government about what's going on within the security forces, the lack of of, of information statistics about crimes, about numbers, personnel numbers, and the fact that, as as I think you're very well aware. Legislation enacted on, on security force operations since the 2010 Constitution was promulgated on the 27th of August 2010, that, implementation, uh, that legislation has not been fully implemented. We tend to look at headline news to tell us how the police are doing. And the headline news uh, in, in the aftermath of the uh, August elections, for example, when the police put down demonstrations or riots in Kibera and Mathari and up in Kisumu and elsewhere, a lot of live ammunition was used mm -hmm. to suppress the demonstrators, to suppress the crowds. Mm -hmm. the, this is not the first, you know, you don't use live ammunition. You don't give all your police uh, their firearms and live ammunition and use that as the first tactic to break up or disrupt demonstrations. We know that uh, we, we tend to look at things like how many Al-Shabaab attacks have there been at any given time. And we've gotten used to having a steady drumbeat of smaller attacks, particularly along the border with Somalia, whether it's in Mandera, Wajir, Garissa, Lamu, or Tana River. And we kind of uh, gloss over attacks where uh, one police armored personnel carrier is blown up or five or six cops are killed in an ambush. Uh, so many are wounded. We, you know, we don't ask questions, and and this this occurs though with uh, pretty pretty regular frequency. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would suggest that if we were to look back to March of this year, 2017, when Al Shabaab did threaten to disrupt elections, uh, that we've had attacks uh, at roughly one every ten days or or, or two weeks, mm -hmm. and they just don't get the big news because they're not massacres. Right. They are simply not the massacres such as Westgate. So there's been a steady drumbeat of. Absolutely. So Absolutely. This, this narrative that the government has been pushing of um, a, a lull in attacks, is that actually accurate? Has there been lesser attacks? The attacks have been have, have not been as big as they could have been, but also we have we have additional theaters of insecurity right. within the country that have nothing to do with Al Shabaab. Mm -hmm. For example, Laikipia, right. where the Kenya Defense Forces have been deployed. And the last headline-grabbing story was six cops were killed right. by armed pastoralists. Mm -hmm. the, this is an area that has nothing to do with ideology. It may have a lot to do with tribal or clan politics mm -hmm. within Lakepia, but also Turkana. Mm -hmm. We have had uh, additional outbreaks of insecurity in Capito, still, Saguda, mm -hmm. where we did have massacres of police in 2012 and 2014, right. if, you may, if you remember. 42 cops were killed in 2012. Mm -hmm. Another 21, because they were only in one lorry, were killed in 2014. Right. So we don't, if we only have four, if we only have four or five police killed, 
by attackers. Right. We don't seem to pay much attention to that. And yet these are attacks by bandits, armed raiders, who are not affiliated with terrorists mm -hmm. or insurgents necessarily, who are basically attacking the instruments of the state. That is the police. Uh -huh. Well, which then um, I think what the, the picture you're painting is that beyond the terrorist uh, menace, the Al-Shabaab menace, that we've got other uh, security concerns. Oh, yes. Now, my question is, why aren't this being addressed? What do you think the failures are in actually stopping this? Why can't we sort of get a handle on this? In one sense, I believe that there's no constituency demanding effective policing. What it means is that we have constituencies demanding human rights, and I'm not going to say we don't need human rights, because in fact, effective policing has to be done within the context of human rights and the protections that are within the 2010 Constitution. The protections, in fact, that are in the various laws, right. pieces of security legislation, enacted since the 27th of August 2010. The, uh, even the human rights of our own cops right. are being violated regularly because we don't have uh, reforms in recruitment. We don't have increased, substantial increases in numbers and, and we haven't, we talk about reforming training and curriculum development, but we don't seem to do it. We know for a fact that whenever there is recruitment into the police, the, the education or the marks basically are aimed at a very low element of literacy and technical proficiencies. We know that because we haven't implemented the reserve chapter in the National Police Service Act, mm -hmm. and that's not to say that we don't have guys running around in places like Akipia, Takana, Poka, in flip-flops wearing jungle jackets and carrying AK-47s. Those are not really the reservists we want. Right. What we want are reserves in the CID or DCI. We want reserves for GSU as well, administration police reserves, because although we continue talking about community policing, the reserves would come from these communities. Right. They would be recruited. And in fact, we would have a career path for our security forces. That is a cop after 10 years wants to retire or wants to go off and do something else. What happens now is they leave the force and join maybe a private security company, mm -hmm. but then they're lost forever to the government of Kenya, right. uh -huh. to the National Police Service. Whereas if we had a, a, a reserve establishment, they, they could move without a full retirement and serve mm -hmm. as reservists do, right. once a week, twice a week, or in the event of an election, to be called up. Because what we found during the elections this year is we the only surge capability we have to get more uniforms out on the street to confront crowds, to provide security for, for 40,883 polling stations, mm -hmm. convoy duties, uh, they had to come from Kenya Wildlife Service. We had to drag in prisons guards. Right. Uh -huh. We had to bring in uh, Kenya Forestry Service, right. forest guards, to, sh to have the uniforms, uh -huh. the berets with the little uh, medallions, right. and the rifles. Now, earlier this year, Patrick, I noticed at places like the Intercon, Intercontinental Hotel, that the armed po police manning the checkpoints to go into the parking garage were not police, they were prisons. And when I asked the security manager at the Intercon, how long have you had prisons wardens here? He says, oh, for months now, months. There, he said, we were no longer able to get armed police. Mm -hmm. And that uh, is a phenomenon that we don't see how many, there's nobody driving around, right. nobody in the media is doing any sort of research mm -hmm. on who is guarding, what are they guarding. Right. Uh, how many, we, we every, every now and again we will have an article that talks about VIP protection. 
Right. That is a judge has 20, 20 guards. Or a politician, a cabinet secretary. Uh, just forget about state house. I'm talking about how many police are, are used on a daily basis at people's homes mm -hmm. and members of parliament and the like. And we estimate that there may be somewhere between 3,000 and 5,000 daily who are deployed to, to VIPs. VIP Absolutely. Uh -huh. Then if you start throwing in, if you just do a, uh, an anecdotal review, you walk in Westlands uh -huh. from where the Barclays Bank is, uh, across from Gypsies. You walk down Electric Avenue all the way to Empaca Road. You will count roughly 20 armed police, two outside every bank, two outside of Forex bureaus. Mm -hmm. They're sitting there. You walk through a shopping mall, whether it's Lavington Mall, Sarratt Center, you will see another two per door right. so of the, the banks. Is, we are, we we're, not de we're deploying these police. police. They are paid. Uh -huh. Shopping malls, security companies, because we don't allow our Ascaris to carry guns in this country, uh -huh. although the same companies like G4S and the like they are Ascaris in right. Uganda. So these, these banks end up paying. Uh, they pay the police, somebody. They uh, pay the National yeah, Police Service. Police then are not on the street. These people are not patrolling, and in fact, their assignments are very, very narrow. Your job is to protect that bank. Right. It's not to protect the bank down the road. Right, and these are the policemen we see uh, on our roads, trans um, helping transport cash to banks. That's uh, because our Ascaris, our, our private companies here, are not allowed to arm their Ascaris. Right. So you will see a cash and transit van with two, two armed police in the chase vehicles, tiny little chase vehicle. If you were to go up to Kampala today and look at a G4S cash and transit taking place, there are no police. Right. Their Ascaris are all carrying shotguns. Right. But the same, but G4S here says, well, the law says this. And by the way, it's expensive to get licenses for all your Ascaris. You have to keep track of the weapons. You have to keep track of ammunition. The licenses have to be updated. The training has to be updated. But what, what we've done in Kenya is we've, we've kept the old British notion that we, we don't really want our police to be armed. That's mm -hmm. in 1981 when I arrived here, the cops were not armed routinely. Yeah, our police now are armed. Everyone has a gun. And they even have guns when, not, when they're not supposed to. Right. For example, when they're deployed for crowd control or riot control duty. Right. The, force, the force regulations, as George Musamali has pointed out on television, he's ex-GSU, have said you have a, a platoon of possibly 30, 35 police, mm -hmm. two of whom will have firearms and live ammunition, two. Not every last one of them. The rest will be armed with shields, mm -hmm. riot batons. In fact, everyone now seems to be carrying tear gas canisters. And so what we've seen, and, we, and to get, this is your question about how well are we doing? Mm -hmm. What we're doing is not that we, that we think that the cops are shooting people, we know they are. We are recovering the cartridges mm -hmm. that show that the bullets are coming from Eldoret, from the Kenya right. Ordnance Factory, uh -huh. and then there's no real follow-through. In fact, sometimes the police will then say, we were shot at by criminals, which would, if the media were much more observant and interested in getting to the, to the truth of these stories, would lead you to ask, well, how did the criminals get hold of ammunition from the KDF-owned Kenya Ordnance Factory in Eldoret? This is basic stuff. In other words, you have to have inventory so we, control. We, we, um, uh, as media, we're not following up uh, to find out what's, uh, what's going on. There's no pressure on government to improve. That's right. Uh, going back to how, uh, how we set up, um, uh, government has said that we've reached uh, the UN mandated 
uh, or UN recommended ratio of police uh, to Kenya. I think they've put out a number that we've got over 90,000 policemen. Um, do you think this is accurate? No, I do not. And the, one, and the, one, the reason I think it's not accurate is because we don't have an accurate inventory or, no, or census mm -hmm. of our own police force. We don't really have our numbers all down. Uh, we not know how many policemen we have. Well, because we have missing in action. We have police who have been who are missing. And in fact, uh, when Parliament has looked into the payment of insurance benefits for cops killed at Seguda or Capito, the late General Ancasari said we, we cannot pay insurance uh, policies. The insurance company will not pay unless the bodies are are delivered or you have to wait seven years. That's the law. Right. If you disappear, seven years later, you can be declared as dead and then maybe the insurance will pay out. And there were t at least two cops whose bodies have never been recovered right. from Seguda mm -hmm. in 2014. So therefore, he was explaining why we're not able to pay the families the insurance benefits. Right. We don't have the bodies. Yeah, but they do know that they've lost two... Well, they know they're families. missing, uh -huh. but we don't know if they're still maintained on the rolls. This is very important because the cops, the junior police, they also know they're on their own in their living conditions and the like. But let's get back to the question about the ratio. Mm -hmm. The ratio that, that is use doesn't talk about the effectiveness of their deployments. It talks about a gross number of population of police. It does not mention the rank structure. It doesn't mention how many are in fact guarding VIPs, how many are been, have been contracted to security companies for cash and transit work, to, uh, to hotels for security work, who are sitting outside banks and forex bureaus and the like, who, who are not available to be on patrol. In other words, we look at a, a number and we say, oh, therefore, we are, this is, is perfect. Is the ratio at all useful? Not a, it's not useful except as a starting off point that might, that might cause you to say we need to recruit more police. We need, to start, we need more junior officers to be coming into the pipeline. But by the same token, again, we don't even count our reservists because right. we, we, we have a whole chapter in the National Police Service Act of 2011 about reserves. And the reserves could actually come from, they would come from the community, but they could also come from, the, from people from the regular police establishment moving, transitioning out of the regulars for whatever reason, not because they're criminals, but because it gets old after 10 or 12 years. Mm -hmm. And then their, their expertise, their training and the like should be able to be adapted for use in the community and not merely form a pool of trained personnel for our private security companies. In other words, we don't, we don't need to keep losing their expertise and their knowledge, especially when they're in their 30s. Uh, so that, and, and by implementing the National Police Service Act, the reserve portion of it, we could actually start actually supplementing our regular police numbers. On top of which, we look at the numbers. That, those numbers also include pilots. We know we have a police air wing. Now, pilots are not available to be used on patrol on the street. See, the, it's, a, it's a number, the ratio is supposed to give you an idea that you see the, the police on the street, that there is a presence, a uniform presence. It doesn't mean, even when you do have a uniform presence, that it's being done effectively. Having police walking on patrol at night through peri-urban areas, through Kalangwari, through slums and the like, or even up and down the leafy streets of Lavington, doesn't mean that they're able to stop or even prevent crimes from happening. There's not much of a deterrence. If you know perfectly well that the police will be 500 meters or one kilometer away if an alarm goes off at someone's house at night. 
Right. The, so we don't even know how the police are being deployed. We do know from, from some expatriates who have been assigned to the National Police Service or IPOA and the like, that police drivers are not ordinarily deployed for crowd control. They're, they sit in their vehicles. They have a very, very rigid sort of... Uh, so just having a, a, a sense of numbers is insufficient. Absolutely not. Uh, when we talk about effectiveness, um, uh, th there's been lots of talk about reform uh, of the police, and uh, lots of it is targeted towards trying to make the police more, I suppose you'd say, friendlier to the community. Um, uh, I'm sure you're aware of the Ransley report that uh, spoke of our police essentially as a citizen containment unit. Um, how are we doing in the sense of reforms? Um, uh, do you think we have been able to improve the way the police behave or their effectiveness in combating crime? Or is it even geared towards doing that, the reform effort? The reform effort is, seems to be much more geared to campaigns, logos, conferences, and seminars. It is true that we want to make the police less uh, of a force and more of a service. But the bottom line, I think, in all of this is we're trying to figure out a way to stop the cops from being corrupt. Nothing destroys a citizenry's uh, faith in their police as if, they're, if the police are shaking them down or extorting people to, and, and saying, if you pay us this, we'll do our job. This has been an, this is a problem, not just in Kenya, all police forces worldwide are always grappling with questions of corruption. In other words, who watches the watchers? And it all does come down, not merely, it does come down to strict discipline. And discipline means accountability, which means that if you steal, you get caught with your hand in the cookie jar down at the police station, the cop station, you go away. You get put in jail. We do have an internal affairs department in the National Police Service, which is underfunded, undermanned, and, and never really mentioned in, when anybody's talking about investigating a lawyer, the Mavoko Three. It's done by a poet, but that eliminates the, 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 any reference to the actual Internal Affairs Bureau that we do have in our police now, which is very similar to what the New York police have. Everyone has. We see it on television. It is most of us, if we're honest, and have been in any sort of uniforms we'll talk about, will know that we stay on the straight and narrow because of the fear of getting caught and punished. I mean, we all start off wanting to do the best job possible. We all want to serve humanity. But in reality, not only do we have underpaid police cadres who live horrible existences in old colonial era housing when they were not married, where in fact there were strict regulations prohibiting junior officers from living with families in compounds, but also in compounds, again, that was to divorce the uniformed personnel from their population, to eliminate, to, to minimize social interaction. That is all gone by the board now. On the other hand, we are continually bombarded in, in, by media reports showing how cops take guns to bars. Off-duty police are able to carry firearms to go drinking in rural bars. Now, guns and, and, and alcohol don't mix. In a sense, our reforms are really not having any effect. Uh, no, they're not, because we don't want to, we talk about the need to fight corruption without admitting that all of us have the potential to be corrupt, and also then asking, what stops me? What would stop me from not writing you a traffic ticket? Which then, which is usually the, the one interaction everyone, particularly in the middle class, will have with the police is on the road. And just disregard for a second the fact that the traffic police were disbanded. 
three or four years ago. In other words, you were supposed to free up. So who are these policemen you're seeing on That's the street? That's the traffic department, which apparently uh, they still, they retain their uniforms mandates because the reform, which was designed correctly to increase the number of trained personnel in the police force. You don't need special training to write a parking ticket. If you go to, you know, there are places where it's more expensive, like in the States, to hire a New York City policeman. You don't really want them writing parking tickets. You make a decision to have a civil service guy walk around in a little uniform. Mm -hmm. But that's it, because you need a more effective use of your personnel than just writing tickets. Here, we did away with the traffic department, officially, because that would have freed up, I don't even know how many thousands of officers that we see every day, who in fact go towards that ratio that the government likes to talk about, although they are not preventing crime. These are things that point to a lot of uniforms, the appearances of a disciplined force, the discussions of how we have a national police service. We don't want to talk about a force. And don't, buy, don't, don't worry about whether we're reading the law and implementing our own good legislation and then amending it. Actually, talking about the law, um, uh, I think you've written quite a bit about the uh, non-implementation of the National Police Service Act. Um, uh, could you expound a little bit on that? You know, what aspects have not been uh, uh, implemented? I think you mentioned uh, uh, the reserves already, but what other things have uh, are in the act that have not been effective? Well, the, uh, the, the, the consolidation of the regular police and the administration police should have been accomplished through the 2011 act. We still have separate services. The GSU, Interestingly, the General Service Unit, which is actually an innovation dating back to the 50s it's from the, of the colonial government, it does or actually have its antecedents and, and parallels in places like Hong Kong and even in Shanghai, which was never a British colony, but where the Shanghai Municipal Police, set up under the concessions, did have civilian containment units or public order units, uh, heavy-handed, yes, but with their own doctrines of riot control, crowd control and the like. We see mounted police. Now, how, how effective are they if they're just deployed? Well, um, uh, sticking to the law and, and all the lessons, what are the places have, we have? We don't see that we have the uh, consolidation and rationalization of ranks between the regular police and the administration police. Now, how does this come about? I mean, very simple. The administration police, who were, began as the tribal police, were found in, they were not within the Ministry of the Interior. Well, actually, they were in the ministry, I'm sorry, let me rephrase. They were in the Ministry of the Interior and Home Affairs. Mm -hmm. The regular police were in the office of the president. Therefore, you have two separate uh, armed organizations, uniformed organizations, with very different recruiting patterns as well, initially. There seems to be some sort of attempt now to say that if we bring in 10,000 police for an intake, as we did in May of this year, that 3,000 of them will go for AP training. And nobody then asks, well, what's the difference between AP training and what, how we train the regular police, which also then includes the traffic police. APs do not do traffic. That we know. Uh, APs are supposed to, do not have investigation powers. They are essentially paramilitary police, one step perhaps below the general service unit. But they are deployed in support of an administrative system which has been done away with chiefs and the like. Yeah, they were part of the provincial administration. Exactly. Uh, we, and that's why they were in home affairs. And that's why when you had these two police forces, which did have uh, decent histories, if you will, they did have institutional histories, he somehow had to mesh them together. That has never been 
successfully done because the rank structures have never been amalgamated, because there's, there's apparently issues of precedence, priorities, there's issues, status basically. We're not like them. And this happens everywhere in the world, except we don't seem to have the political will to actually cut through that and say what... Although the, uh, I mean, the, the, the idea that the provincial administration was done away with legally was, but it still is retained um, in the county commissioner yeah. system, ATC. So uh, our AP is still answerable uh, along, uh, I mean, to our county commissioners and regional commanders, or are they answerable to the police commissioner? Yes. They are answerable to both. The deployment, it seems, if you look at county commissioners, and there's nothing that wrong with a county commissioner, because if the governors in the devolved system were doing their jobs, the governors do sit on the county security committees. They don't have any direct command authority over the, any of the police who are assigned to the county, but the governors don't even ask to have reserves. The, the governors do not say, I don't need anti-stock theft unit in here in Nairobi. I don't need guys on horseback to chase pastoralists here in Mombasa. Governors are not, you know, Peter, I mean, Peter Anyango, I don't know what he does necessarily up in Kasuma as far as his interactions with the commissioner of police, the IG, Inspector mm -hmm. General of Police. But Peter would notionally, as would anyone who has a lake, ask for more maritime police unit. It's, it seems counterintuitive, right? Still, sticking to the, uh, to the AP and uh, this lack of integration with uh, a regular police, right. um, uh, the law, as, as I understand it, um, essentially says that all of the police forces should be answerable to the uh, Inspector General yes. of Police and, and that he has independent command. That's Nobody correct. else should be uh, uh, sort of detailing police That's to do correct. this or the other. Um, question is then, why do you need regional commanders? Why do you need county commissioners? Well, county commissioner is different from a regional commander, but you're actually in a very important area. That we, have, we seem to have ranks created that do not correspond to the actual government, the geographical limitations on the ground since the 27th of August 2010. This is a very serious problem. We know there's a, a regional commander uh, somehow, so Mr. Marla, uh, where he's supposed to be in some sort of commanding and control of several county commissioners. Right. But we're not sure how that works. See, also the, the budgetary allowances. But we see him issuing orders. Of course he does. And, stuff. and they fall into line and nobody asks, what's the authority? Nobody will ask, what is your so authority, sir? He shouldn't, I don't believe, I don't believe he should be able to because as a regional commissioner, there's no provision for that in the law. I don't see why the, he's not on the staff of the IG of police. He's not it, answerable to the IG. But he has to be. He should be on the staff of the IG of police. The IG of police needs to have a, a vigilance house or a shell BP house, wherever they're hanging out these days. He does need a, a genuine staff. He should have, right there, from the, from the point of view of administration in particular, the AP commander, GSU, and all the like, sitting right there, in a, if you will, in a command center, but, so he can find out what's going on in the field. It's a very complex and complicated situation. So, um, uh, in essence, the police force we have right now is not structured according to what the law recommends uh, and what the constitution requires. That's right. You know, um, and that obviously has implications on its uh, uh, effectiveness. That's correct. The implications on the effectiveness, the discipline, and also whether we our fascination with the number of police in accordance with the U some UN statistic 
makes any sense and makes any difference. And the fact that no one, that our media in particular, and I, this, is, this is a genuine problem, that if you don't have a media that's willing, not to attack, we're not talking about investigating wrongdoing and corruption, but to actually even understand how the police are supposed to be run in accordance with their laws and legislation, that you can have a situation as we saw with, with Ryler's return, where the biggest security force operation ever mounted in Nairobi, uh, which basically brought Nairobi to a total standstill because of the insecurity that provided, the insecurity provided by our police, uh, you know, is, is looked at at the media as some sort of effective policing. They, they don't say, they don't ask, how is this effective? Is that the job of the police to in fact disrupt political rallies, to in fact stop demonstrations? Is it the function of the independent policing organization under the constitution to do something other than maintain order and provide the security for everybody to go about their business? And that's everyone, including people who are not interested in politics, including expatriates, including people who are, are always being told, don't get involved locally. And yet, we don't ask those questions. And, it, and it's not that the media is a heavy burden. It's not and they ask the media to do their job. On the other hand, sometimes the media has been castigated and punished for, for actually doing its work. For example, exposing $38 million that was spent at the end of the fiscal year in 2015 ended up with a number of journalists, uh, I think from the nation and standard perhaps, being taken into custody. These were 30, this was $38 million of expenses right. made on so the So these are just police uh, essentially, uh, or, or the, the, the government trying to plump down on media, essentially exposing. Exposing possible, this was, but they, in, but in uh, fact the media didn't even, did not even initiate the investigations. They picked up on what the attorney general had reported, which oh, is, the, the, I'm sorry, the auditor general. Thank you. The Auditor General, Mr. Oko, who had reported that some $38 million was spent and he couldn't trace the receipts, the invoices, he couldn't figure out who got paid. And, as, and there were companies mentioned in, 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 in Parliament as well and in the Auditor General's report, some of which uh, had to do with maintenance of police helicopters others of which had to do with acquisition of police firearms. So we, we have a situation where either the media doesn't do its job or when it actually tries to do it, it is then uh, shut down by government. Absolutely. And then and thereafter, once the journalists are released from custody and the media council of Kenya has had its demonstration. And all this leads to an, a force that is then not held to account. It's a force that, that basically is able to operate with impunity, with impunity because there's nobody questioning what's going on. All right, I'd, I'd like us to move on to um, uh, the issue of, uh, uh, of terrorism, um, uh, which is no longer sort of grabbing headlines uh, as before. Um, uh, going back to 2013, we saw, I mean, there was quite a, an upscale of attacks, especially following the invasion of Somalia in 2011. It seems to have sort of petered off in, the, uh, in a sense. We don't have major attacks as we saw in Westgate and, uh, and Garissa. To what do you attribute this? If it's not our force that's being effective, um, what could be leading to that? Okay, uh, Patrick, it, the tailing off or the diminution of attacks by Al-Shabaab, which by the way, as I think I mentioned earlier, uh, we have attacks that, never, that were not Al-Shabaab related in Laikipia, which is not drawn off hundreds of police right. to suppress yeah, whatever's but going on. Uh, you want to talk about terrorism, Al-Shabaab, but also we, we know that the, we, we haven't had as much terrorism along the coast, mm -hmm. although we, we, never, we never really understand 
if uh, the police, the anti-terror police unit are doing their job effectively, or if terrorists themselves are focusing elsewhere. There, as, a, as you mentioned, or I mentioned, and you repeated, there has been a steady drumbeat of attacks this year. Just they haven't grabbed our attention. And, you know, we know that a few cops had killed here, a few were wounded there, a vehicle is destroyed here, a vehicle is blown up here and there. And it seems to be every, once every 10 days or maximum two weeks. It also, there's a lot more activity going on across the border in Somalia with Al-Shabaab anyway. But if we get back to the attack on Kubio, which is across in Somalia, it's an Amazon base, January 27th, 2017, we believe 70 or 80 soldiers may have been killed. I think that was even the government of Kenya's own admission. Uh, the government said nine. No, but, nine, um, that's right. But but the, the UN has reported yeah, it's seven, right. 67. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, uh, because uh, Amazon itself yeah. you had a report. Uh, there were much more, including four or five police who were killed responding to the attack on Kilbia from inside of Kenya. Because it seems that the 800 to 1,000 al-Shabaab terrorists who attacked this Amazon base, half of them may have attacked from the Kenyan side. Right. Um, uh, and, and we'll get to the attacks within Somalia uh, in a minute. But um, my question is really about attacks within Kenya. Yes. And uh, we haven't had major ones. Well, um, you're right. You're and, right. And my question again is, is this attributable to effectiveness of our police in deterring and stopping attacks? Or is it just that Shabab and uh, planning and, okay. and, and moving out? To, to be out. fair, if, if counties are under curfew from dusk to dawn. And it's are four counties already. There are, there are four counties under curfew. One is not, I mean, but that includes Tanner River. Mm -hmm. That means you, you're not supposed to have buses out at night. So you're not going to have 40 or 50 people killed in an Al-Shabaab ambush. Right. So therefore, it's not a headline grabber. Mm -hmm. You also don't have the escorts out there in the, in the dark. We keep hearing reports, however, that, that vehicles are in violation of curfews. However, you can shut down, if you shut down uh, a county like Mandera, for example, and you actually pull the licenses of all the buses, which was in the newspaper uh, over the weekend, that means uh, there's fewer targets. Right. There's fewer targets. On the other hand, we seem to also forget if Al-Shabaab goes into Garissa, goes into Mandera, which was done in 2016, late 2016, in town, and only four or five or 11 are killed. Only. But, but, but that still says that the, the policies that are being implemented at least are having a, an effect in deterring or, okay. or at least re reducing the, the opportunity. The policies to being implemented, that is that there is no normal transport. Mm -hmm. That is, there is no normal commerce permitted mm -hmm. in four or five of our counties inside the border of Kenya points to the lack of effective policing mm -hmm. and, the and, and our, our willingness to shut everything down in certain marginalized counties so that Al-Shabaab doesn't have the targets. Um, uh, how better then could we do it? What would be your suggestion? Well, again, if we would figure out how to reconstitute the, the administration police, how to integrate administration police, build the reserves so that you actually have people in the community who are armed, mm -hmm. who are working with the police as part of the police establishment. We believe that administration police units assigned to duties up on the border are not fully manned and that they may not, in fact, have their senior officers present much of the time. We, we, we have known that some of the AP bases that were overrun in 2011, 2012, uh, have been attacked on any number of occasions. Basically, what they do at night is they shut themselves in. So that allows al-Shabaab to go to and from across the border. It allows smugglers, I suppose, as well, to move commodities across the border because you're not allowed to be out, therefore you're not out. 
these are, it, it, I, I hate to come across as sounding either condescending or insulting, it's not my intention, but this is the way things work everywhere, everywhere in the world. If you close yourself off from your population, if you don't have community police, real police, that reserves, you will eventually so have no information. More reserves, having more uh, police sort of interaction with communities yes. uh, 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 out there with uh, more patrols, I would assume, um, rather than simply shutting down um, a county and making sure nobody moves uh, after that. See, in many ways, Patrick, what the questions you're asking go to the fact that we, it's both a very simple, the solutions are relatively simple if you take, if you accept that we're not implementing our own laws, which to include deploying the Kenya Defense Forces domestically on security force operations in violation of the Constitution. Yeah, actually, I wanted to get to that because um, uh, we've seen um, a, a lot of times um, uh, whether when, when we have domestic problems, so um, whether it's in Laikipia or in Mandara, we've seen the KDF deployed. Um, the, the law, as far as I'm aware, requires parliament to approve these deployments. But this doesn't seem to be the Always Constitution done. requires pre-approval, pre-authorization before the Kenya Defense Forces are deployed on security operations within the border. If there's an earthquake, uh, tornado, volcanoes, whomever, an outbreak of the anthrax, the KDF can come in and then the CS for Defense has to provide reports to the National Assembly. But for something like Westgate, which was an attack, a terrorist attack in Nairobi, right. They classified it as an emergency. It was classified subsequently in the Kenya Gazette when it was in fact being wound down as a deployment to support the police during a natural disaster, an environmental emergency. But it was not. Parliament was in session. And also, as, as I think we, we can agree, the police had the situation in hand on day one of Westgate and would have continued to do their thing, albeit a bit late, before the KDF showed up and killed the GSU officers the SWAT team that was being deployed within Westgate Mall. This is on camera. This is not me making it up. This is me watching this from the United States right. at the mm -hmm. time. But this is fact. These are facts. Uh, we have some. We have damn, tr damn fine police tactically, individually. We know that. Trained in units, the GSU Reckies, who when they finally were allowed to show up at, at Garissa, took 20 minutes mm -hmm. to kill the four terrorists who had already killed 147 students and staff on campus all day. With uh, all the KDF sort of surrounding well, the there's, place. Well, there's a KDF base. Right. In Garissa, and they were, and the, the battalion commander, following the law, I guess, mm -hmm. covered himself by only deploying him. Yeah, but why is it then that we're not seeing parliament uh, uh, coming in and insisting that uh, KDF, for it to be deployed, has to be um, authorized? That's an excellent question, because parliament changed the law in, unconstitutionally when they amended the uh, KDF. Act, which was brought up by the, by the opposition and then forgotten for reasons unknown to themselves, that removed the, the, re, the requirement that the KDF have to need advance authorization. The rationale, the, by the way, Patrick, I know you're going to ask, was the Constitution amended to reflect the subsidiary legislation? No, it wasn't. We know it hasn't been. It hasn't been, and therefore the subsidiary legislation is unconstitutional. What's important about that is it's a slippery slope. Before the 2010 Constitution, we really had no legal prohibitions against the use of the army domestically. It was not seen as being important. Kenya was not the same thing as Uganda, Rwanda, West Africa, Sierra Leone, all this, the host of all these other failing and failed states with military coups. We were not. 
therefore nobody thought about it. In their wisdom, the framers of the, of, of the 2010 Constitution said, hey, you need to get pre-authorization. It requires a vote of 50 MPs. Uh, there's a, how many, 400 and some odd members of parliament. It's not that difficult, except the, um, when, they were, when the National Police Service Act and the KDF, when everything was being amended, the KDF Act, which was originally going to be amended in 2015, which it was not. I had articles at that time in August of 2015 in the Star and the Standard newspapers talking about the, that we can't use the KDF as a fire brigade all the time. We can't use them in substitution for the police. And this is where we get down to the failure to implement the National Police Service Act. The way it's designed, the way it's, it's written to be in, uh, implemented, is that we keep filling in the, the, the lapses and gaps. We keep tossing the KDF at these lapses and gaps, and we ignore the law. In fact, what was done by, admin, by amending the, the KDF, Kenya Defense Forces Act, it was done to make it, well, we can't get parliament to convene. Therefore, and we have such serious security issues that it's not tenable to, uh, to have parliament actually obey the constitution, to give its authorization when the soldiers are being used as police. Regarding the deployment in, uh, in Somalia, of the KDF in Somalia, um, uh, my question is basically, how effective has that been? And there's been talk by the opposition, uh, by Rello Dinga, that we should um, uh, withdraw our troops. Um, uh, Jubilee is insistent, and President Kiyate is insistent that we should keep them there. Where do you stand on this, and what do you think should actually be done? The uh, deployment of the KDF in Operation Lindenchi is October 15th, 16th, 2011, as early as December 12th, 2011, was ineffective. It had failed to do its job, uh, it, mainly because Al-Shabaab- What sense was it ineffective? It was ineffective because Al-Shabaab refused to fight. They came, there were no body counts. They didn't really, they didn't seem to disrupt Al-Shabaab units operating in that part of Somalia. It was launched in response to the kidnapping of two Spanish MSF volunteers from near Dadaab. The uh, operation, after six weeks, they ran into the rain. They drove right into the rainy season. There were very few Kenyan casualties, but, very, but there were hardly any results. Nobody who was supposed to be recovered, including police who had been abducted, soldiers who had been abducted over the years, wherever were recovered because of the operation Lindenshi. Al-Shabaab did what insurgent groups always will do. They melted away before a better armed and better trained adversary. The, the mission began to creep to, until the, the seizure of the port of Kismayu on the Indian Ocean in conjunction with the Ras Kamboni Brigade, who may have been involved with the attacks on tourists in Lamu. Uh, that became the objective, which was ultimately seized on September 28th, 2012. The fact By is- which time we had already- We had increased the number of troops up to 4,500, uh, and sometime in April or May, we had rehad it as Amazon, which was designed to shift the costs of this invasion, this incursion, if you will, to the UN or to Amazon, the AU, to the US and others who, you know, who pay. Yeah, but do you think we should now keep the troops within Amazon? No, absolutely, no, we, they should have been withdrawn on December 12, 2011, as I wrote in the Business Daily. Withdrawn, not to the barracks in, in Gilgil, the barracks in Nairobi, but to forward combat bases inside our border to be re-equipped reorganized and retrained so that whenever we want to go back across into Somalia, into what became sector two, we can do so. It's the right of, the, it's Kenya has the right of hot pursuit uh, to a neighbor. 
if the neighbor is harboring terrorists, bandits, whomever, they were launching attacks across the border. The bottom line, however, was that the, the, the launch of Operation Linnichi, a perfectly legal punitive expedition, saw an uptick, a major uptick in terrorist attacks in Nairobi. Well, now the KDF need to come home. The operation has, well, the deployment has failed. El Adi was a perfect example of what can happen when we had at least, anywhere I thought initially 120, 130, it was a reinforced rifle company that was significantly destroyed by Al Shabaab. It was overrun. The rifle company had, had replaced another reinforced rifle company, but they were sitting in a battalion size uh, defensive position that had never been modified to fit a smaller unit. Uh, it, it demonstrated a level of incompetence on the part of the KDF that I was. I was yeah, which, which actually is, is interesting because uh, it brings back, uh, bring us back to the discussion on impunity. Because we haven't really seen any action taken um, uh, about El Ade and Akulbio, which you mentioned earlier, um, uh, uh, which happened again on the anniversary of... Uh, well, it happened uh, on January 27th because Al Shabaab, which, which are not six foot tall, they're not super soldiers, they were unable to get their act together to actually run the uh, attack on Kilbio uh, on the 15th of January right. to celebrate, commemorate the attack, the overwhelming success they, that they enjoyed at, at El Adi, much more than I understood. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the idea of uh, uh, impunity, uh, the fact that there has been no, at least as far as we know, um, any senior officers held to account for what was really a huge failure in, in El Ade and in Kolbeo. And then again in um, Yeah, and do you think that this is part of the reason that we don't have, we are not as effective as we could be perhaps in our deployment within Somalia? Oh, absolutely. I really need to get to uh, uh, what we're doing uh, uh, domestically, especially when you speak of withdrawing the KDF and putting them in forward um, operating, uh, uh, forward bases basically, yes. uh, combat positions as you say. Um, how does this tie in with the idea, which um, I know you have pushed yourself, of having a border war with Somalia? Would this in any way be effective? It's not so much a border wall as border control, which is fence lines. It is re-equipped, retrained, and reorganized administration police units. It's establishing border crossing uh, posts, if you will, that would be heavily secured, could be open 24-7. Uh, that would include, it would be a multi-agency presence, whether it's immigration and the like, but the police. But it also involves police intelligence. And it does, and here's where we come into National Intelligence Service, which you haven't mentioned yet. See, we also, because we are a small country, we don't need a CIA and FBI or a Mossad and Shin Bet and all the rest of this stuff. We do need a consolidated intelligence gathering uh, organization, NIS, that would then be able to feed information to the relevant and appropriate police units, which the NIS said they had done prior to Impecatoni in June of prior 2014, to prior to well, Westgate. Every major and although the previous NIS director was, was, was retired, but he had been in the job for, for six years anyway, uh, enough was enough. The thing is, every after all these attacks, NIS has said, we gave the intelligence to the police. Somewhere, and as I have said, somewhere within the police, there's a breakdown of how do you use intelligence? How do you move it around? Who's in fact in charge? We have, you know, we, we could say that perhaps the reason we haven't had a Garissa University since, or even, in, I don't know, in Pecatoni on the scale of Impecatoni, is because perhaps some of those reports are actually being 
used, filtering down to the police. I mean, there was uh, the amendments, the security amendments law that um, uh, in essence said that it's a crime for people, for police not to act on yeah. intelligence. Well, that's fair get. enough. But I think also uh, it's, it's within the police. Do we know how the police coordinate their own operations? Again, the lack of command and control that, that we can see. And it's not about security that we don't, we shouldn't be told that the APs talk to the GSU, talk to the regular police. It's not that we should be, you know, we should be, it should be explained why we still have traffic officers when they're not supposed to be out there. In other words, that's not security. This, calling the, all these things security measures allows senior officers, senior people, and politicians to hide behind the security, whereas... You know, accountability. Um, no if we might come back to the wall, to, to, to the idea of policing the border, yeah. um, uh, it's a 700, 900 kilometer border. How, how, how would we really uh, realistically Police such it's, it's a vast area. It's about a $250 million project all in. And that was, these, these figures were developed by Civicon, part of Trans Century, in 2014, who drew up the maps, who organized some of the yeah, aerial photos. Yes, and as I, yes, it would be. In fact, it would start being effective as soon as you broke ground, putting up fence lines, military roads along the border to shuttle troops around or police around on our side. And as, because Al-Shabaab has now established camps, permanent camps in Lamu County, in Tanner River County, Mandera, it, they but, have but established them. on this side of the border, they will try to get back. Would, uh, they will try to get back. Help. They will try to get back into Somalia because if you do have, if you take seriously the goal, the objective of controlling the porous border, shutting it down, and whether that, that cuts into people's corruption, that is sugar smuggling, charcoal smuggling, commodity smuggling, drug smuggling, human trafficking, the receipts from human trafficking, all these are against the law. And that would have a salutary effect on, uh, you know, on, on all these criminal activities. But Al-Shabaab also, they have camps inside Kenya, but they're not self-sustaining. Well, if I may, uh, and this is the, again the pushback, is um, uh, Ethiopia, which has a much longer border with Somalia than we do, doesn't have a wall. They have much stronger uh, local structures in, in Agadan. They have devolved. See, the thing is about, they, I know they're having problems now with the Oromo, but the fact is, and there are still some problems with their Somalis mm -hmm. uh, on their side. But basically, the, what the Ethiopians have learned from the Agadan Wars is they have devolved. There's a, they are a federal system, a federal republic for real in Ethiopia. They have actually implemented devolution a lot better than we have. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they don't have the same element, the same amount of discontent in the Agadan as we have and have had for over 50 years in northern Kenya. Yeah, so rather than uh, uh, looking to build walls, should we be looking to actually... Now we should be looking to um, build the fence lines because in fact, as I said to the Inspector General of Police in August of 2015 at Strathmore, as soon as we start breaking grounds, Al-Shabaab will start attacking the road crews along the border and, and Al-Shabaab will come out and they, we can kill them. The fact is, yes, Andrew, we, but still, um, walls I, have worked. Walls worked in, in East Germany. Walls have worked. Walls worked along the Rhodesian border with Mozambique for a while. Um, Fence lines right. controlled. You cannot prevent the masses. Especially yeah, I mean, there are communities that straddle these borders. I mean, putting up walls in between fence them. Fence lines. Uh, or, or fence well, lines in between them. Bulldozing all-weather military roads along the border. But also, more importantly, and you're right, devolution, if we started implementing devolution so that the people who live in those counties along the border with Somalia thought they were part of Kenya, mm -hmm. 
So we, they, that is, they had healthcare, they had schools, they had community, community reserves, police reserves, that they had government that was devolved to them. The 14 functions uh, under the Constitution, all the hearts and minds sort of thing. That is part and parcel of effective counterinsurgency operations. Counterinsurgency is not about just killing people. You can, you can kill people almost endlessly, but if you don't eliminate the reasons why people don't feel any kinship towards a government, you can talk about patriotism. Patriotism to what? To a, to a government that doesn't give you ID cards? Patriotism to a government that doesn't share out government jobs? Patriotism to a government that doesn't provide health care? Patriotism to a government that when you report the presence of al-Shabaab in your community, you're dragged in and beat up? I have had members of parliament from those areas agree with me after I've spoken on television that yes, their, their constituents are scared to report al-Shabaab and they're scared because the police will go after them and extort money from them and brutalize them. We've seen, we started seeing in early 2012, another example of how al-Shabaab ramped up its activities on our side of the border in reaction and in response to Operation Lamentri, so many assistant chiefs and chiefs were resigning. That is, you know, it is the, the, between the government, the center, and the people, they were resigning because they didn't have adequate police security. And this was happening, and they were saying, they were turning in their badges, they were turning in those, their pith helmets. And that was removing information that would have been available to NIS, to the police, from these guys who were saying, we're not being protected by the central government. This was, a, this was in the newspapers. Right. Our media was reporting this, we were seeing this. Nothing was ever followed up. It wasn't, they, there were no changes made. Meanwhile, here in Nairobi, we have 6,000, 7,000 police, armed police, protecting VIPs, <laughs> sitting outside banks, playing, looking at their telephones, uh, providing shot, riding shotgun on cash and transit vehicles, fair enough. But don't pretend that those six or 7,000 armed police daily are protecting Kenyans. And of course, we keep running into this issue of close the border, stop the smuggling cartels. That's why it's not happening. There are, there are very substantial and, and important points, which is if we got a handle on al-Shabaab terrorism, wouldn't that cut off the flow of American money? Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to be overnight. In fact, the flow of American money, which is not that much, we continue if we were able to demonstrate why we doing everything in accordance with our own constitution and in accordance with the subsidiary legislation passed since 2010 would make Kenya a much more reliable ally in the war against terrorism in Somalia. You can call it whatever you like. You don't have to buy into the, you know, my notion of hearts and minds and pacification, but we're not willing to do that within our own borders. That is, we aren't, and we're, and until we get a handle on what we want to achieve, which is national security. Whether it's done by the police, which is preferable, whether it's done by the KDF operating as they're allowed to across our borders in conjunction, inside, in conjunction with the police, so that we do have effective uh, military operation, an effective umbrella, if you will, under which we can implement devolution for real. This, is not, this should not be pie in the sky stuff because it's in our constitution, I believe. <laughs> and this is stuff, this is not just coming, we, we don't need uh, five or six, a, a myriad number of different police forces like has developed now in Afghanistan, where the Germans do this one, the French do that one. We don't need this sort of multi-agency, multinational, West African style where the French are doing this, but they don't want to lose their people. We're going to have more troops, we're going to have 800 Americans. That's the last thing we need is to have a base somewhere in Wajir to, for drones. 
Because you know, that's great for the U.S. So um, I, in short, um, implement um, our own laws, our constitution, um, and uh, create the structure that it recommends. Um, uh, fix the impunity that's, uh, that's there. And much more importantly, I think, is um, deal with the grievances within communities, implement devolution for real. Absolutely. So that people actually feel that they're part of the country. Absolutely. What would generate a better security? And, and we need to be able to talk to our politicians to ask them, what are they doing to do this and why not? What are you doing to establish centralized command and control within the police? Why do you have these structures that don't exist? And if the media, but here's where we are, the, if the media themselves are not, don't, don't want to publicize this and, and follow up on it, and I don't know why not. I, well, that's what we're trying to do here. That was a fascinating discussion we've had with, uh, with Andrew. Um, uh, obviously, it's a topic we can cover, hope to cover in simply one sitting, and uh, hopefully we'll have you on um, uh, another time to sort of help us articulate uh, the, the challenges we're having. Thanks for visiting the elephant, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank mm -hmm. you.